Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, well, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of Brookings and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Damon Linker is away this week, but we are delighted to welcome Will Salatin of Slate to fill that center-left slot. Thank you so much, one and all, for being here. And it's a very different world from the one that we faced last week. Um, The um, political world is still shaking its head at the stunning reversal of fortune for Joe Biden's candidacy. So let me just point out that when we were here at last, which was February 27th, the betting odds on Biden's chances of winning the nomination were 22.6%, whereas Bernie Sanders had a 54% chance. Today, the odds are 88.4% that Biden will prevail. So, Will, why don't we start with you? Um, you want to give your analysis of why we got here? Well, uh, what happened to the Republican Party in 2016 did not happen to the Democratic Party in 2020. Thank God. Uh, it, it is entirely possible. L- lots of things are possible at this point. I wouldn't. I, I would take the 12 percent bet against Biden at this point. That 88 percent is rather high. There's a lot of uncertainty. But uh, the Democratic Party got its act together just in time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were about to face the prospect of a a presidential election between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, uh, which would have essentially not offered a lot of Americans, if not most of them, an option that they considered palatable. And if you don't have, if the opposition party, as we saw in the UK, does not present a viable alternative, what happens is the the party that's in power doesn't have any incentive to govern well. And so... We have a chance now for Democrats to present uh, an alternative that at least forces the Trump administration and the Republican Party to um, pay a little more attention to the needs of the American people and to governing well. Hmm. Um, I noticed when I was listening to various pundits reflecting on political events of the past week, um, a lot of people's first reaction was to say, well, I was sort of right. Well, I kind of predicted this. <laughs> and, um, of course, very few did. But um, in that spirit, uh, I will say that um, in our last podcast, I did sort of predict that maybe the African-American vote in South Carolina was going to go strongly for Biden and this might change the tenor of the race. Anyway, maybe lucky guess. But, um, but Bill, um, the... Uh, the, the South Carolina, it, it, it wasn't, just, in our last podcast, we talked about how big of a victory did Biden need in South Carolina for it to change the complexion of the race. And I think we agreed it had to be double digits. So it was, what, 30 points? Is that right? Yeah. So um, when that happened on that Saturday night, did you begin to get a little feeling of something you haven't felt in a very long time, namely optimism? Uh, it takes a lot for me to permit myself to be an optimist uh, <laughs> and has for quite a, quite a long time. Yeah. No, uh, I, didn't, I didn't start to get optimistic that something big was happening until the, uh, until the other Democratic candidates who had so conspicuously underperformed not only did the right thing, but they did it in time. They went all in. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it was as though the gates had opened and the entire structure of the Democratic Party decided to come together in world record time. Not the entire structure. Just I mean, there about. is, there is the, the whole Bernie way. No, no, no. But, the, but he's not part of the structure of the Democratic Party. I chose <laughs> yeah, my yeah. word. Yo, okay, he's, okay. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, uh, and enabling uh, Biden to pull off the most conspicuous resurrection since Lazarus. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're going to they're going to be writing about this one for a long time. We yeah. haven't seen. I, I've been following Democratic primary politics now for four decades. I can't remember anything to match this. And I'm going to go out on a limb and 
and say that I think Biden, for all practical purposes, will have the nomination locked up by the end of this month. That is to say, I think he will have a delegate lead that will be insurmountable. Why do I say that? Uh, he may win a few on March 10th, uh, based on past form. But on March 17th, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio will all cast their ballots. Uh, Hillary Clinton won all four of those states in the 2016 Democratic primary. We're talking about another 600 delegates to be selected on that day. Uh, I think that Bernie is going to be wiped out in Florida. It looks that way. Uh, right. The he polls has, are unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, he, well. has, he, he has pretty much dug his own grave in Florida. And Florida is you know, the biggest prize of those four quite sizable and important When you states. say he's dug his own grave, are you referring to his comments about Castro? Or what, what are you well, referring that, to? Uh, yes. Okay, uh, yeah. You know, because even younger Cuban Americans who mm. aren't determ determined to reverse the results of the revolution uh, <laughs> do not have a warm and fuzzy feeling in their hearts for Fidel Castro. And by the way, Cubans are not now the major Latino group in Florida. There are now lots and lots of other Latinos. Uh, they may be the largest single uh, ethnic group, but we've got Venezuelans there, Nicaraguans there, uh, and others. And he, you know, Bernie was also, you know, a big fan of uh, the Sandinistas, and he has not really had much bad to say about Maduro or Hugo Chavez. So, um, so I think you're right. I mean, you know, Florida uh, is. Bernie has done well with Hispanic voters. He did well uh, with Hispanic voters, better than I thought he should have uh, in places like Texas. But he's going to really fall on his face there. But And he know, also doesn't do well with older voters. No, and, that's and of course, that's right. <laughs> that's the, and, and actually, they vote, and they vote <laughs> and in they big vote, numbers. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Linda, talk about that. So one of, the, one of um, Bernie's uh, uh, visions of the race was that he was going to be bringing in hordes of new voters, young voters who would perform this political revolution for him. Um, and uh, it turned out that most of the new voters who did show up uh, voted for Biden. Yeah, and that the uh, young voters, true to form, like every other race we've ever covered or seen, um, younger voters simply fail to show up when the time comes, right? They, they've got other more important things to do. And they don't, <laughs> you know, they just don't seem to uh, to be prompted to actually show up and vote. But it was, you know, it was really interesting. I think the turnaround became even, came around even before South Carolina. I think Biden's performance in the debate, it was almost as if he had nothing left to lose and he was just going to be Joe Biden. And I really thought he did very, very well in, in that last debate. I think it's time we talked about the role of Jim Clyburn. Oh, well, and of course, mm -hmm. Jim Clyburn. Um, so Jim Clyburn not only gave his very critical endorsement to Biden at exactly the time of maximum impact, but he also took Biden in hand and he said, you need to come and sit down and talk to me, okay? Here are the problems that I'm seeing in your campaign. You are too meandering. You don't, you're not crisp enough. I mean, people know that you're compassionate and they like that about you and that's great, but they also want somebody who's a little firm, you know, who's, who's a little tougher. Sharper. Sharper, <laughs> tougher. And he's, he, uh, in one phrase that got picked up in the Washington Post, he said, you know, remember that when preachers preach, mm -hmm. they have the rule of threes, right? You know, you have to explain how it affects you, right? the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Anyway, he, he was basically urging Biden to be crisper and more on, on his message. And during that, uh, that was before that debate. Mm -hmm. And arguably, Biden listened. Yeah, let me Bill. give you Let me give you a perfect example of concision and the rule of three. Okay. Okay. Here are, here's what Jim Clyburn said in 10 words. Count them. I know Joe. We know Joe. And Joe knows us. Mm. Now, that is a rhetorical <laughs> gem. That's great. It sure is. 10 words and it's like click, click, boom. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the way you deliver yeah. a message. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I want to um, 
agree with the Clyburn part of this and disagree with the Biden part of it. That okay. is to say, uh, uh, Clyburn absolutely did rescue Biden. A lot of people are rescuing Biden. Yes. Biden did not rescue Biden, in my opinion. I don't think Biden had a great debate. I think that in retrospect, Biden was resurrected and we tend to look back and say it was the debate. He did so well in South Carolina. At the time, my recollection is the commentary was not that he had had such a great debate. Some people thought that, but a lot of people were not particularly impressed. He was he was run over a lot in the last couple of debates. Well, and also it was hard to see because Elizabeth Warren was so busy riding a tractor over the dead body of Mike Bloomberg. That was the headline from <laughs> yes. those debates, absolutely. And that helped, too. That yeah. helped wipe out uh, Bloomberg. But this, to me, this what's happening is not about Joe Biden. It's about Bernie Sanders. If you um, look back over the last, uh, the entire primary season, Bernie Sanders has held roughly 25% of the vote the whole way, mm -hmm. everywhere, except Nevada, which was a caucus. He got a lot of vote out there. All that's happened is that everybody else consolidated behind Biden. And I don't think it was anything marvelous about Biden. I think that the, it, the deadline was approaching. They were about to go into Super Tuesday, and Bernie's 25% was about to get him a delicate lead that people felt they couldn't stop. So suddenly the deadline was here and all the dithering was over and anybody who didn't really have a great opportunity to win the race realized we got to get together and stop this guy. And they chose Joe Biden. Biden was the only person yes. that they could put up there. And, and Biden didn't have money, but Biden had name ID. He had favorability. Um, it's true uh, what, what Bill said. People know Biden. They like Biden. They're willing to forgive cognitive impairment. They're willing to forgive a lot of things because they trust Biden. Mm -hmm. So Biden was the guy that the Democrats could put up to stop Bernie, and it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I would add that there's one other factor. I don't know if this played a role, but it may have. Um, COVID-19. Uh, when there is a public health possible emergency on the horizon, uh, you don't want a revolution. You don't want somebody who's going to come along and smash all the existing structures. You want somebody who is familiar and mm -hmm. comforting and you figure is, is going to be competent. Um, and that may also have played into this a little bit. Well, I, I, I agree with you that it played into it, but not in quite the same way as you're suggesting. I think what COVID-19 has done is made people terrified about the man that is in the White House now, because he clearly is not competent. Yeah, we're going to get to that in our next segment. But, <laughs> but, but the point is, um, I think that helped this coalescence. We have to have somebody who can beat this guy. And there was never a question about Bernie being able to beat him. I think, if anything, the COVID-19 might have, if Bernie were the nominee, might have, you know, the free health care for all immediately will bankrupt the system, but who cares? Okay. We'll all be dead anyway. So um, I, I just, I, I think people want somebody who can beat Trump. Yeah, well, no question right. about that. Yeah. But, but you know, just, to, just to reinforce your point a little bit, Mona. Uh, Michael Bloomberg got Biden wrong in one important particular. He tried to brush aside Biden's experience by saying, well, he's a legislator and mm -hmm. I'm a manager. What Bloomberg forgot was that Obama assigned Biden to run the recovery program, which got $800 billion out the door very quickly. It was you know, all set up for scandalous misuse of money, and it was run as clean as a tick. Uh, and Biden was the guy who made that happen. Uh, he does know how to manage complex processes. Mm. And uh, I'm uh, not totally convinced of that. I mean, I, I, I remember that stimulus bill. There was, I don't, don't you remember Obama acknowledging later, oh, it turns out there really aren't shovel-ready right. projects. There's a, there's a mean, distinction between, there's a distinction between that on the one hand and scandalous abuse of taxpayer money on the other. Mm. Uh, and what I would emphasize is in the administration of that package was the honesty and integrity, not the infallibility, hmm. right? But the fact, the fact that what could have been a total disaster of governance was not. So I want to 
go back to something Linda said a few podcasts ago when we were discussing Uh-oh. the race. <laughs> She's not um, going to embarrass you, Linda. <laughs> because it, one way I, I think that you can look at the race is, you know, when you consider that from the moment that he announced throughout the year 2019, Biden was at the very top of the polls nationwide. And then at the end of the year, when we had the impeachment drama, uh, we also had debates, but but the impeachment drama arguably put a real, uh, dampened his, uh, his approval quite a bit. Uh, the Republican effort to smear, the, for the Trump effort, which was then picked up by Republicans uh, across the country, to smear Biden as being corrupt and involved with Burisma and so on and so forth, did work. And I believe, this is now leaving your point and coming to my point, I believe, as I said at that time, that it isn't even so much that they tried to smear him as that he didn't have a good response. Biden didn't. I mean, in a way, the impeachment was a a silver platter opportunity for Biden to demonstrate his competence, to make the case that, look how badly they don't want to run against me because I'm the strongest. And he had nothing to uh, apologize for about, I mean, yes, his son probably shouldn't have taken that job, but he himself did nothing wrong. It was false that he fired the prosecutor who was going after his son's company. It was the opposite and so on. He wasn't strong. He did not make those points. And I think that is why voters began to look around and think, well, who else have we got? And for a while, there was a Bloomberg uh, frisson. Uh, I, I remember seeing signs popping up in my neighborhood for him. But uh, boy, it was the briefest. Uh... There's all the Republicans in your neighborhood. But it's still a problem, don't you it think? It is I mean, still a problem. It, yes, that is going to yes. still be a it problem. Still a He's problem. got he to get an answer. He has to figure out how to answer that in a, in a, in a way that is clear and, you know, with like three points, right? One, two, three, make the points very crisply and confidently don't look so guilty, right? When it comes up, Biden tends to get a little uneasy. I think he's embarrassed because I think it was wrong for his son to take that job. Right, so say that. Yeah, I mean, it would be better if he could just say that and get it out there. But, you know, I mean, it is very clear we're going to hear a lot more about Burisma. Now we have the possibility that, uh, you know, they're issuing a, a subpoena, but uh, it looks like uh, Senator Romney may come to the rescue again and vote yes. against uh, the issuance of a subpoena for Burisma papers. Um, but this is, they Trump himself has made it very clear. He's going to talk about this all the time. So Biden and Biden's people have to get a message out there. And it doesn't, it isn't enough for the press, which they have continuously done, to say there's no there there and, and you know, there's really no credible evidence of wrongdoing, et cetera. They've got to come up with a really strong answer. And I think probably admitting that I wish you know, my son hadn't taken that job. Um, I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, he's, he was an adult and I was dealing with uh, my decline of my other son who, who subsequently died. But he's gotta, he's gotta do it in a forceful way. And I think you're right. I think he does look slightly embarrassed when the subject comes up. So he's gotta figure out how to get beyond that. I think he can, I think he can do it with a little bit of shaming too saying, you know, you know that at that time right. I was dealing with the, yeah. you know, with the right. cancer diagnosis of my other son. You are aware of that, okay? Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, make it eh, push back in that sense. I, I kind of want to join Bill in the gloom caucus and push it a little further. Though. Okay. <clears throat> um, it's, it's not good that we and a lot of other people and Jim Clyburn and everybody else have to sit here and coach Joe Biden. Um, and we're trying to give him things to say. The, he doesn't really know what to say, but the fundamental problem is he's not good. He's not a good presenter, at least at this age. Right. Um, and it, he requires a lot of coaching. He forgets his lines. He's not. He, he can't even string together a lot of thoughts in a row. Um, so that's going to be a problem the whole way. Even if we can come up with an answer for him about Burisma or a bunch of other things, he's not good at presenting it, and he won't be good at presenting it. That may be okay if 
what's really going on is people like Joe Biden and they trust Joe Biden and they're willing to set it aside. So pointy heads like me may look at Joe Biden and say he's not a good presenter. And people may, the voters may say, look, we don't like Donald Trump. We're looking for somebody basically competent. And we like this guy and we trust this guy. It doesn't even mean that Joe Biden has to be a good manager. I mean, Bloomberg is the guy who presented himself as a good manager, but he's such a cold fish. Um, and it really counts for a lot if people like you. Mm -hmm. Likeability. Yeah. Well, Joe Biden's a very likable guy, and he may get away with things not in quite the same way that Donald Trump has, but in an analogous way. Uh, people may forgive a lot of failures on Joe Biden's part because they like him and trust him and feel like he's on their side. Well, there was a very significant Pew Research Center poll that came out just yesterday underscoring just how disaffected Americans are including many Republicans, with the character of the current incumbent of the Oval Office. And 80% of Americans, including a solid majority of Republicans, say that he is self-centered. And let's decode that. It means he cares only about himself and not about them. Uh, equal number... Mm, doesn't quite mean that. Well, it's pretty... It means that, that he's preoccupied with himself. It doesn't mean he only cares about himself, well, necessarily. Yo, name someone outside of his family that he really cares about. No, no. About. I mean, I happen to think that, that I happen to think that's the case. I'm not right. sure the voters But it's think. also, yeah. but if you, they evaluated public sentiment along a number of other yeah. dimensions. Is he honest? Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That that got a 36% positive. 36%. Mm -hmm. Okay, that means that a whole bunch of Republicans, and they break it down by party, yeah, and yeah. there are there are startlingly large minorities of Republicans and who will affirm that he lacks a number of positive qualities, and a significant majority of Republicans who affirm that he's self-centered. I think the character contrast with the two of them standing on stage, this, I'm taking myself out of the gloom caucus for a minute, I think that contrast is gonna be worth something. It's important that they like him and they don't like the president, but I think these other judgments of character are going to be significant when people are weighing the choice it's of the balance. It's very and and you know remember the debates between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Mm -hmm. You know Al Gore had more facts at his fingertips, right. and he was he was um, uh, arguably the better debater you know, on debater points. But he was unbelievably obnoxious and full of himself and condescending toward George W. Bush. Right. And the voters thought that George W. Bush won that encounter because mm -hmm. they preferred the guy who seemed more likable. And yeah. by the way, I absolutely believe that that's why Elizabeth Warren, despite having these supposedly wonderful debate performances, did not perform well at the polls. I mean, we talked about her put down of Bloomberg, and she succeeded in hurting Bloomberg with that. But I think I said at the time on the yeah. podcast yeah. that I thought it hurt her. Yeah. I thought her walking across the stage and confronting Bernie Sanders uh, and, you know, refusing to shake his hand hurt her. Likeability is an incredibly important factor in elections. And you may not you know, simply pick the guy you'd rather have a beer or gal you'd rather have a beer with. But if you come across in a way that is unlikable, uh, that's going to hurt. And, and frankly, you know, Trump presented himself to a section of the population, at least, as likable in a certain way, even with his nastiness and his yeah. cracks. And I don't know. I think the contrast <laughs> between, I think the the, the, the uh, race between Trump and, and Hillary Clinton on the likability scale approached absolute zero, <laughs> zero. on the Kelvin scale. <laughs> well, neither one of them was very likable. No. But, but you know, we, we all forget, and again, going back to Will's comment, None of us were big fans of The Apprentice, but the American people watched that show. They knew him. When you talk about, you know, knowing Joe Biden, they thought they knew Donald Trump, and a lot of them thought they liked his brand, whether it was his hotels or his ties or, you know, his steaks. <laughs> Actually, or, those uh, all went bankrupt. They all did. <laughs> they all went back, but they still, they, they, he sold a product to enough people. Yeah. Enough people were willing to buy it. And and by the way, when you when you talk about um, these two people being on stage and the self centeredness, when things are going well. 
for you and the country. When your pocketbook is a little more flush, your uh, 401k is doing better, uh, your kids, you know, have a good job future, uh, you're more likely to not mind that the guy who's getting the policies in place is self-centered. But with things like coronavirus and other things, the stock market fall, other things, people are now suddenly anxious. And I think that's going, when you're anxious, you want somebody who can feel your pain and and try to soothe your anxieties. And there's one thing that Donald Trump is not good at, and that's feeling your pain. Well, that's a good uh, transition uh, to our next topic, which is the uh, coronavirus. Um, The U.S. now has 233 confirmed cases and 12 deaths, the last time I checked. Um, But we're not sure about those numbers because there's a dramatic shortage of testing kits. Um, And and the president... um, has handled this. Well, today he did sign an $8.3 billion package to fight the coronavirus, but he More had than only three asked, times what his administration he had asked requested. $1.25 billion, uh, which was an amazingly low right. ball amount for something and like this. And he bragged this. about that, by the way, yes. when he was signing it. It was yes. like, well, I asked for less, they gave me more. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Trump is handling this. Um, the way he handles pretty much everything, which is, speaking of being self-centered, that it's all about him and it's all about how eager the media or the Democrats are to blame him and that he's doing a great job and that he is... Anyway, it's, it's like the world revolves within, you know, a millimeter of his own nose and he cannot see further and... and uh, uh, I think the the quote for the week. So and and maybe this will come to to be a serious problem for him. I don't know. I mean, there's many many unknowns here. But you know, it, when you're dealing with other kinds of issues, um, even impeachment, you can have dueling interpretations. But when you're dealing with an actual outbreak of a of a pathogen, you really can't spin it. I mean, it's going to have its own reality, and people are going to be aware of that. And uh, and now you have people in the government um, who have accumulated trust over decades, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the head of the NIH Infectious Diseases uh, Bureau, whatever they call it. But anyway, everybody knows, or many people know who Anthony Fauci is, familiar, trusted figure. And he said something this week that was really remarkable. He said, quote, you should never destroy your own credibility, and you don't want to go to war with a president but you've got to walk the fine balance of making sure you continue to tell the truth. Now, that is remarkable. We are now in a situation where because of the crazy pathology of the president needing to be ratified every minute and needing to be praised even when he's lying, um, you have this this, uh, uh, trusted figure saying, well, I have to continue to tell the truth, but I don't want to go to war with the president. So what's a guy to do? Well, hopefully tell the truth. And, you know, it really, um, we talked about it, I think, last week when we talked about uh, Pence being appointed to head up this effort and everybody getting up and giving speeches. And they were mostly about how wonderful the president was and what a great job he had done in stopping this, you know, terrible virus from spreading, all of which you know, turned out not to be true. But now facts do matter and science matters. And I don't think there's been enough made of the fact that there used to be an office within the National Security Council to deal with pandemics because it was always believed that you need to be prepared. I mean, that's the whole thing. Preparedness, whether you're talking about preparedness for war against uh, an enemy like the Soviet Union or China or whoever, or preparedness in order to deal with something as, you know, nonpartisan as a virus uh, is part of the competence that we expect from our leaders. And that competence is sorely lacking. So, Will, one of the things that the president did this week is he said that it was the Obama administration that had taken steps unspecified that made it harder for us to fight this virus. 
And when the officials in the various agencies were asked about this, they all said, well, we don't really know what he's talking about. But, the, you know, they have to they have to say it without seeming to contradict the president, too. And this is part of why it's so nuts that this man is president of the United States. But your reaction? Well, so people, especially at the age, by the time they're 70 years old, there are certain things they're good at, there are certain things they're not good at. And they're going to do the things they're good at, whether or not it applies to the situation. So what is Trump good at? What are his shticks? Uh, I would say they are walls, uh, poles, and or narcissism and um, blame, right? So he's got the walls part down. He's like, well, we'll pull up the drawbridge. Don't let the Chinese in. Don't let these people in. Don't the part where we sort of try to seal the country. Yep. He can do that. Uh, the narcissism part, I mean, he, there was a town hall this week. Uh, the first question is about coronavirus and what we're going to do about it. And his first answer is about polls. He wasn't asked to talk about polls. He just started talking about himself and the polls and what a great job we've done. So his focus is entirely on the, the appearance of it and not on the reality of it. And the third thing is blame. If, if things fail, if, if, if options one and two don't work, I'm going to blame Obama. I honestly don't think it's going to matter whether he gets away with blaming Obama because people are, you know, people are scared of what's happening right now. A blamer is not going to get away with it. I think this goes back to your original point. You can't spin your way out of this. And a, a virus is, is uniquely um, unforgiving to someone who deals in appearances rather than in reality. And uh, it doesn't, it's not like the perfect call. You can't just say it was perfect and the media buys it or lets you get away with it. You can't say the virus is perfect when people when people are dying. So um, I think he's in real trouble. He's, he's, he's gone to all his gears and none of them is really working. Bill, it's not just the president, but it's his uh, it's his clack in the in the you know they always talk about the media, but there's a big conservative media uh, clack that that supports everything the president says, and it's Rush Limbaugh and it's Fox News and all the rest, and they are circulating this idea that it's all been exaggerated to hurt the president, or uh, you know that that it's no worse than uh, uh, than a bad cold, and there's nothing to fear. Um, you know, look it. In a situation where you have an unknown uh, threat, you know, you don't want people to panic unnecessarily. On the other hand, to specifically um, circulate falsehoods mm -hmm. for political reasons strikes me as just nuts because it's it's self-refuting. I mean, what happens then? You know, if you say, oh, well, this, there's really nothing to worry about. And what happens if that's not right? Maybe it's right. But what happens if it's not? Well... We're now in Chico Marx territory. <laughs> Who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes, right? Yeah. And and when you're dealing when you're dealing with something that people can evaluate for themselves, right? Right, where it's not a mediated reality; it's right. more immediate than that. Then you you can't spin straw into gold. Uh, what worries me most is if you look at all of the public health manuals of how to respond to things like this. At the top of the list is clear, consistent, and credible public statements from people in positions of authority. Right? Everything depends on that. That's the first rule in Public Health 101. And that is what we're not getting and what we can't Get. Well, so you're I, not, you're not going to get it, you know, by the way, on Fox. I mean, I, we yeah. haven't talked about it, but, you know, this week he was on the phone with Sean Hannity, he the president, and he was talking about how this, you know, some people will, you know, they may, they'll stay at home and or maybe they'll go to work and they'll get better. Nobody pushed back mm -hmm. against him on that. They'll mm -hmm. go to work. Well, yeah. let me let me tell you. Let me tell you why I personally am starting to get the willies. Uh, in the past week, you know, I have learned of two people uh, in the New York City area who are now in self-quarantines uh, because of the coronavirus. Uh, one of them with whom I was going to have a debate in New York City this coming Sunday uh, has a daughter 
who was in a Jewish day school where there was a diagnosed case, and now they're all self-quarantined. The other, uh, a, a woman who organized a conference that I attended just a few days ago, just learned that one of the passengers on her flight back from Israel was diagnosed with the coronavirus. And so she, too, is in self-quarantine. Now, what are the odds that I would personally right. know two people like this? Mm-hmm. Either, either this is a huge fluke or there's a lot more of this going around than we yet understand. I'm putting my chips on the ladder. Yeah. Let, let me just, for the sake of fairness, let me yeah. just say that not everything that Trump did was the wrong thing. I mean, it was right to limit travel from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, quarantine is mm-hmm. still a, a correct way to deal with uh, with a, an epidemic. So that was not wrong. It, no, it, it is was wrong to, for him to say, everybody told me not to do it because I'm <laughs> sure nobody, to, nobody told him nobody not told to, not to do it. <laughs> but, um, but in any case, so that's fine. I mean, you know, he, yeah, he did sure. one, he did one good thing, but, but to, to reinforce what you were saying a minute ago, uh, Bill, which is um, in, in the, a situation like this, what people need from government is there, there should be a spokesperson for the government, somebody from NIH or whoever, maybe Anthony Fauci, who comes out every day at five o'clock mm-hmm. and says, here's what we know, here's what we're doing, um, here's what the public needs to know. You know, it can be 10 minutes, whatever it is, but there has to be somebody in authority coming out every day and talking about the, the uh, scope of the problem and the effort to combat it. And instead, you've got you know, well, Pence comes out every day at five o'clock <laughs> or thereabouts, but he doesn't really yeah, inspire doesn't any conflict. Right, exactly. It, it, the the problem the problem is, and I, I I sort of get this from the president's point of view. He has he has prospered in public and private life by running a kind of a confidence game. And the confidence game, and I don't, I don't mean this in a derisive sense, is he believes that confidence can change the world mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. lack of confidence can wreck the world. Mm-hmm. And so he has what I'll generously call a theory of the case, mm-hmm. namely that the stock market is going to plunge when confidence is lost and you lose confidence not so much because of objective conditions as because people are persuading you to panic. And so when Anthony Fauci tells the truth and and just lays out the timeline for the development of a vaccine and says, at best, we're not going to have an effective vaccine until next spring, right? Right. The, the president hears that. He says, that's going to under that's going to panic people. They're mm-hmm. looking to the government for a cure now, not for therapeutics, but for a cure. You can't tell people it's going to take a year. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I sort of understand that, but the facts are the facts. Right. So in many and as everybody around this table has said in different ways, um, in many areas of life, it's shocking how much Trump is correct. That you can create your own reality, you can convince people of things that aren't true and get away with it, except not in this situation. Well, except I think he probably is going to be proved right, and I think we should not be part of the problem in sort of, you know, doomsday scenarios with this virus that a lot of people are going to get this and not get very sick. Look, sure. I, I'm in the high-risk category. I'm over 70 years old. I don't have real underlying health problems, but I have asthma, so I've got respiratory problems. If I get it, it's going to be worse than if you know a younger, healthier person gets it. But the fact is a lot of people are going to get it. They're going to get sick. It's going to be miserable. Anybody who has had uh, influenza, as I did in 1968, sicker than a dog. I mean, it was, I've never been that sick in my life. It's terrible. But we're not all going to die. No. And and I think one of the things that I worry about is I couldn't believe it when my, you know, sister started and friends in Boulder started sending me pictures of, you know, the the shelves in the grocery stores empty. This is crazy. You know, th- nobody needs to go out and buy. You cannot buy hand san- sanitizer now if your life nope. depends on it, uh-huh. and it may. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know they're, but don't panic. <laughs> but, but you know, but I but I think we have to be sensible, and it all goes back to you know questions of numbers and people not sort of understanding. 
yes, there's probably many, many more cases. I would say there are probably thousands of cases in the United States now. I don't think that's an exaggeration. If you know two, and um, you know, we just got reported last night that in Montgomery County there are three. And who that's knows? If right outside Washington, right outside Maryland. of Washington D.C. That's right. So it's it's going to be everywhere, but not everybody is going to be sick. But we still have to have competence, and we have to be able to deal with the people who are going to be very Mm -hmm. sick. And that's the real worry, is that we are not equipped, even though it's going to be a small fraction of the people who get it, some people are going to get very sick, and we have to have a coordinated response with our hospitals. It has to be something that is led from the top, and the federal government has a role to play here. Well, and the other thing that happens, though, is you're right that, you know, 80% 80% of the people who get this virus are not, at least as far as we know right now, and maybe this information will turn out not to be right, but it looks like about 80% of people will get mild symptoms and it won't be that serious. But first of all, they're going to have to self-quarantine, which is going right. to hurt the economy. And second, um, there will be many, many more people among that 20% who do get very sick who are going to need to be in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And first of all, we don't have that many quarantine places in hospitals, Mm -hmm. and it means it's going to take resources away from people who get other diseases and other emergencies that have to be dealt with in hospitals, which can really present quite a challenge for us as a country. So um, it is is potentially uh, really, really serious, and I think you know that's why the stock market has proceeded to go down. You know the the uh, the Fed <laughs> dropped interest rates by half a point, which I thought I, I don't know m- that much about interest rate policy, but that struck me as really beside the point. I mean, it's not that people can't get loans. I mean, that's not the issue. And we're, um, and we're and, getting too close to zero to exactly. have to have a continuous. <laughs> and, and, I wasn't you know, where they could share with a half a point to give. That's yeah, right. exactly. And Chairman Powell said, he even acknowledged, you know, the, the, somebody said, well, you know, maybe we don't really need an interest rate cut right now. And he said, yeah, but this is the only tool we have, so we're going to use it, basically. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. As, as soon as Linda used the words federal government that just takes us out of donald trump's wheelhouse right yes. i mean that this is we you get into a situation where if it's not about pulling up if it's not about putting up a wall if it's not about pr you know if it's about spending if it's about resources or preparedness or having having spent the resources to be prepared to have the people on staff to have the medical personnel to have the research there th- this is not something that the republican party tends to excel at and a lot of elections have been decided. Or the Democratic Party. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, the private sector tends to excel at this far well, better the, than government. The Democratic but this Party is at least has a reputation where... for spending money to deal with domestic problems. Yeah. So a lot of elections are decided by voters saying, you know, we need the mommy party now or we need the daddy party now. And right, right. now, what's a lot of what's needed is not what the Republicans are known for. That's and that's going to hurt them. Let that's me, true. Let me make a governance point here, yeah. looking across the Atlantic for just a minute. Uh Boris Johnson stood up in Parliament a day or two ago and said, you know, we have a law where sick pay kicks in on your fourth day of being sick. And that's a problem because a lot of people are not in a position to forfeit days one, two, and three of pay. They may not have that kind of arrangement with their employers. So, we are quickly going to change the law so that sick pay kicks in on day one so that people won't be cross-pressured deciding when they feel ill right. whether they Do should I go, go to work, to work or not. Or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, compare that to the system in the situation in this country where there are tens of millions of workers who are facing day one losses, and these tend to be at the lowest pay levels who really can't go without one or two or three days pay because they're living from not only paycheck to paycheck, but day to day. This is, I think, a big wake-up call for the United States, Mm. that we have to align individual incentives with the public interest. And sometimes that requires public intervention in order to achieve that alignment. And this is not a singular case. Well, maybe. Uh, (laughs) This is a test, Republicans, on this podcast. Maybe. I I would prefer, I imagine, to, I think there are, you know, um, health savings accounts, for example, or the kind of thing where um, people could have um, tax-free savings where they could put money away for just such a situation as this, and that might be a better 
Well, but, well, um, Mona, I'm going to break with you. Okay. As, uh-huh. Even as a conservative. We forged a winning coalition. You know? I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here with my, uh, my cup of coffee that I just picked up from a low-wage worker. And one of the things I thought about it was, well, you know, if there's somebody who's likely to get sick, it's these people who are in these jobs where they're constantly in touch with people. And they're touching my food, and I'm uh, blithely drinking it. So uh, the, the problem is, I think, as, as Bill suggested, that low-wage workers don't have savings accounts for anything, much less health. And and one wonders if, if you were being creative. We have very low unemployment. I don't know what the unemployment, uh, you know, we have unemployment insurance that employers pay to take care of unemployment. Somebody in government ought to be looking at sources of money that could be redirected and used in a way to help promote public safety. Because this is a public safety issue, and we don't want really sick people. Even if it's a small number, even if only a small number are going to die, we don't want uh, people going to work in industries where they're, you know, having intimate contact with with other people um, when they're sick, when they've got the sniffles even. Uh, I want to join in with Bill, and I want to push this. I, I, I've I've done a lousy job of representing the left, and I'm going to do a lousy job of representing it on, on some other topics. So let me really push on this one. Um, this is an area where socialists, that is, you know, social democracy, that European socialists tend to do a lot better. First of all, we're dealing with a herd situation. It's a virus. You know, what what I do affects other people. You can't have a libertarian situation where I don't want to, I don't feel like observing these measures about cleanliness because you're going to infect other people. So. Where, where herd concerns come up, uh, collectivism tends to do better. Um, secondly, socialists are much better about giving people security. So back to Bill's point, if you give people the security of knowing, look, your checkup is covered, your test is covered, uh, your staying home is covered, that lets people behave in a way that is more helpful to the, to the, to the group, to the collective, which, again, in this situation is useful. So th- it may be that this virus is uh, a context that makes a case for, you know, here's where a lot of what we call left-wing ideas apply well. But it could be temporary. I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing that we change unemployment compensation, you know, to cover sick pay forever. But when you have a health crisis, there might be a way in which you mm-hmm. can, again, divert some of the programs we already have and help pay for. Well, not people. to sound too partisan, you know, but this is a president who has discerned emergency after emergency that does not exist. <laughs> right. Now, this is a real one. I know. Surely let's take, let's one of the 127 <laughs> grants of emergency power that the Congress has recklessly given right. to the executive branch over the yeah, past 40 th- years can be deployed on behalf of public health. Yeah. Is that too much no, to that's ask? That's right. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, there was no danger of the caravan coming right. but the coronavirus uh, <laughs> is coming um all right let's let's spend a few minutes um on this uh taliban deal uh because uh it's really quite amazing um they have announced a deal uh that supposedly um the u.s would be negotiating directly with the taliban and leaving out our afghan partners who are the democratically elected government of the country. Um, and uh, it looks an awful lot like a retreat and a defeat for the United States. Um, it would it would guarantee that the Taliban would uh, that that the uh, government would release 5,000 jihadists that are in their custody. Um, it would um, uh, the US uh, would promise to, uh, withdraw half of its forces within the next few weeks, and then all of the fo- all of our forces within 14 months. In exchange, and this is an amazing thing when you consider that uh, how much time on the campaign trail Donald Trump spent excoriating the uh, the um, Iran deal, saying, you know, we gave away everything, we got nothing. Well, here he's giving away. Um, uh, everything, and in exchange for a promise that the Taliban will prevent Al Qaeda from threatening the United States in the future, but there is no enforcement mechanism in the deal, and uh, it's it's purely a promise. And Linda? it's and it's even worse than that because you know the deal was signed Saturday, and in the next four days there were seventy six attacks by 
the Taliban, including an, uh, a big attack on Kunduz in which they uh, killed a number of people and they executed Afghans. They executed these Afghan forces, literally came up, shot them in the head. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are watching uh, series uh, year eight of Homeland. It's but eerie. They've been, it's very eerie. It's like parallel. There's a mole in the White House that's feeding these uh, scripts because, <sighs> you know, th- th- these deals, we, we these are not reliable partners. And by the way, that attack on Kunduz came hours after Donald Trump got off the telephone with the head of the Taliban. And said they have a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Yeah, right. Yeah. They have a, yeah, well, oh, another instant best friend. Yeah, I can yeah, hardly another, wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, uh, it, it is disgraceful. And I have to say, as, as an American and as somebody who believes in American exceptionalism, I mean, one of the saddest days of my life was the fall of Saigon. Um, and this, again, looks like another time when we're abandoning our friends, the people who the fought along, the Kurds, people and who fought this. along, and now now the Afghans. So, look, you know, maybe we should not have been in this war for 18 years. Maybe we should have gone in and gotten out quickly. There are a lot of second-guessing we can do on Afghanistan, uh, but the way we're doing it now is certainly not the right way. Look, Syria uh, Syria is a different situation. Syria is a newer situation. There are a lot of open questions about how that could go. I, and I did not like the way that Trump betrayed the Kurds and, and brought the Turks into that. But Afghanistan is different. And here, I, I've, I'm sitting in Damon's chair, so I need to channel him a little bit. I mean, I have, I have generally more neoconservative sympathies than, than he does. But 19 years, $2 trillion, 150,000 dead, uh, 2,500 dead Americans. Um, very important to stress that <laughs> not not 150,000 dead Americans, but yeah. 20, yes, 2,400. Only like oh, just to be to be fair, only 50,000 of them are 40,000 are, are civilians. The rest were you know combatants. But like the the, the 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 entire country of Afghanistan has just been in a life of war, a culture of war forever. And there, you know, I don't know whether this is going to work, but I know that after 19 years, that this is what failure looks like. I mean, the deadline to do something, to the deadline for the people, for advocates of intervention to have succeeded passed long ago. It depends what the goal is. You say it's a failure, but if the goal was to prevent Afghanistan from being a launching pad to attack the United States in the way that we were attacked on 9-11, then it was a success. You can make an argument that, that what's happened with, you know, what is worse than that. Um, that that even that an attack having happened in the interim would not be as bad as what we've as what we've caused and what we've what we've been in there. Um, I I am not optimistic about where things are going to go from here, but I I think that a continuation of where we of what we were doing was indefensible. We failed, we failed, and we've failed in other places. There are contexts in which military intervention <clears throat> can work. There are in, in, there are contexts in which occupation can work, but. At some point, you have to say, this failed, and we have to try something else. So if we're backing out and um, retreating, why do we have to sugarcoat that deal by giving them aid, mm-hmm. which we're promising to do, and giving them 5,000 of their uh, of their captives? Well, I mean, good, if we're going to surrender- We could just pull out. Yeah, we could just surrender, right? The, you know, the good news, if there is good news, is that- the Afghan government, which holds these 5,000 prisoners, we don't, is right. you know, not impressed either with the terms of the deal or with the names of the people who negotiated it. Mm-hmm. But let me, you know, let me go back to Will's point uh, and broaden the discussion to include the Roman Empire. Right? <laughs> uh, the Roman Going back em- a long time. The Roman Empire had a perimeter which was in a state of constant warfare for centuries. It needed to be policed and patrolled. You know, Marcus Aurelius, of course, led the Roman Roman forces when he wasn't contemplating his stoic naval. Uh, and uh, uh, so here is the real choice confronting the United States. We cannot win in Afghanistan no, no matter how long we stay, because as generals have admitted, it there is not a military solution. However, we can prevent outright defeat if we remain indefinitely. Now, Americans have been willing to remain in countries indefinitely as, in effect, 
occupying forces or peacekeepers as long as Americans aren't dying. The honest presentation of the options facing the American people are defeat in Afghanistan via the withdrawal route or continued bloodletting, including a diminishing but still significant number of Americans in the name of avoiding victory for the Taliban. That is the real choice. Are we willing to remain with our forces indefinitely? What, what I find distressing is that all of this gets played out in a crazy sort of alternate reality where those choices, which you're right, those are the real mm -hmm. choices that we have to make, are nowhere any part of the conversation. Uh, you're going to have um, you're going to have people screaming about endless wars. You're going to have people like you're going to have Trump saying this is the greatest deal that could ever possibly have been gotten, and only I could have done it because I am strong. And you know, whereas this is a very weak action, but he's going to portray it as strong, and a lot of people are going to buy it. Um, and uh, and so we're not actually going to deal with the with the reality and and well that that is true, but here's the political reality. Kabul will not fall between now and the presidential election, <laughs> right? Henry Kissinger was once asked what we got out of our negotiations with the North Vietnamese, and his response was a decent interval, mm. which wasn't quite right, but that was what he said. Uh, this is going to be an indecent interval, but one that will serve the president's political purposes in the same way that having the Supreme Court not make its not hand down its decision on the Affordable Care Act until after the election serves his political purposes. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not totally sure you're right about Kabul not falling. Um, it uh, well, it could the the explosion today that killed 32 people in Kabul was not an encouraging sign. Although interestingly, the Taliban have have declined to accept responsibility. And for by it. the way, you know, part of this deal is that the Taliban are going to do everything. You know, they're they're going to prevent Al Qaeda from from launching attacks, but just as you all pointed out, just since it was signed, you know, there are all these attacks all over Afghanistan perpetrated by the Taliban. And what does Mike Esper, our De Secretary of Defense, say about it? He says, quote, the Taliban are honoring their piece of the agreement in terms of not attacking U.S. and coalition forces, but not in terms of sustaining a reduction of violence. Oh. And then he said, keeping that group of people on board is a challenge. They've got their range of hardliners and softliners, so they're wrestling with that too. Well, then how are how good are they as negotiating partners? All right. Well, Moving we'll right see. Along. Yes, we'll see where that goes. All right. Um, now our final segment, uh, something we want to draw attention to or something that someone on the other side wrote or said that we agree with. So I will start. Um hard to believe, but Michelle Goldberg had a piece in the New York Times this week. I almost always disagree with her pretty um, pretty comprehensively, but um, but her column, which, which appeared before Super Tuesday, was uh, a column about Bernie Sanders's interpretation of the race, where she pointed out, based on studies and other things, that Bernie Sanders cannot count on new voters, that that just isn't happening, not going to happen. And uh, it was it, anyway. So I thought that since I know she is somewhat sympathetic to Bernie Sanders, I thought this was an honest column, and I agreed with it. So good for her. Well, I uh, am going to point to an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal uh, in the tech uh, section of the Wall Street Journal. It didn't get a huge amount of attention, and that is that Facebook removes Trump. Um, campaign ads citing census interference policy. Apparently, the Trump campaign was putting up ads. They look like they were some sort of a census form. They were really a way to gather your information and then direct you towards the campaign. Uh, and Facebook finally said no to an ad. But that does tell you that, you know, the Trump campaign is going to be very, very savvy in using these kind of techniques. And it is going to take some vigilance to stop these you know, on scurrilous kinds of things from happening. And by the way, the Democrats will use them too. Will. Uh, I'm going to do the hardest thing for me, and that is to defend Donald Trump. <laughs> so about a week ago in South Carolina, Trump went to a rally and talked about coronavirus and said, uh, referring to the Democrat, he said, this is their new hoax. He talked about impeachment, then he talked about the virus. And this was 
widely interpreted in the next couple of hours um, and in the, in the week since as Trump saying the virus was a hoax. Uh, I definitely saw Mike Bloomberg saying that Trump said it was a hoax. I saw other Democrats saying that Trump Elizabeth said it was Warren a hoax. Elizabeth Warren said it. Elizabeth Warren. Trump did not say it was a hoax. There are a lot of things that, I mean, Trump lies all the time, and nobody should trust anything that he's saying about the virus. It may, something, things that Trump says about the virus may turn out to be true, but never because Donald Trump said them. <laughs> However, it is just not true that he called it a hoax. And there is a, is, this is a difficult thing for Democrats because they hate Trump, and it would be really advantageous politically for people to believe that he said it was a hoax, and it looked like he said it was a hoax. But in fact, he didn't. And I think Democrats have to decide, are they going to be the anti-Trump party or are they going to be the party that, unlike Donald Trump, tells the truth, even when the truth um, doesn't help them politically? And I think this is one of those cases. Yeah, good point. The world's largest democracy is descending into ethno-nationalist violence, and the world's oldest democracy is not even trying to do something about it. Mm. I'm referring, of course, to India. You know, under the leader of under the leadership of a Hindu nationalist whose true colors are emerging more and more clearly after his successful reelection campaign. Uh, as someone who's concerned with democracy abroad as well as at home and concerned about what democracy here at home can do to strengthen democracy abroad, I am profoundly worried. We're talking about more close to a billion and a half people who've conducted a pretty successful experiment against the odds in multi-ethnic democracy, which depends on a civic conception of citizenship and of the nation. And in a diverse country like that, and in a diverse country anywhere, including the United States, ethno-nationalism is pure poison. And that's what's going on in the Indian subcontinent, and it saddens me and scares me. Well said. Until next week, thank you all. Mm -hmm.